I would invite you to turn again as we have been moving through the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to go to chapter 22, jumping over a, a section at the end of chapter 21. And I'll combine that with the second half of 22. So this evening we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 22. And the next Sunday we're going to take up the final half of chapter 21 and combine it with the final half of Deuteronomy chapter 22. Now let me say this about the book of Deuteronomy. God is, and I've said this already, writing laws for people where they are. And he is at times so brutal in his honesty and open with the nature of not just how sin affects our hearts, but our bodies, that it's a little bit at times like preaching through the book of Leviticus. Uh, And so parents, sometimes I'm going to make Sunday dinner conversations perhaps a little bit awkward for you, and you're welcome. (laughs) These are things that we ought to talk with our children about. And I'm going to leave to you the delicate topics and the way you present some of those things. But as we are a people who are devoted to love and good deeds together, and as we are a covenant fellowship and family, uh, it's right that we learn these things together. Because what we are trying to build as holy people set apart for love and good deeds is not just a holy society that exists inside these four walls one day a week. But what we're actually trying to do is build a holy society where people can be blessed by righteous laws. Can you imagine if we could go back and overturn or make it as such Roe v. Wade never happened? I'm not saying it would do away with all abortion. I'm talking about the overturning of the laws that make abortion mills possible. Now I know that it's a strange exercise indeed of those who hold to God's sovereignty. And as we look at the nature of the judgment of God that is being poured out on kind of people that would pass such laws. The question for us, as I presented last week, is if you were a king for a day... What sort of laws would you implement and why? And what would be the sense and sentiment behind those laws in order to bless those under your rule? Now, I'm not talking about the kind of laws that are often promised to you. If I were king, it would be free candy for all the children. You know what I mean? Buying off the favor and affections of people. But what if Christ came to earth? What sort of kingdom would he establish? He would establish a righteous kingdom. And so we find in these 12 verses ways in which the righteous might maintain and establish righteousness in the land. Verses 1 through 12. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him and you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with anything lost of your brothers, which he loses and you find you may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, 
nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree on or near the or in any tree or on the ground, while the young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall not make for yourself tassels on the four corners. Sorry, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we ask, as we come across a variety of these laws, that you might give us understanding as to what they mean and how we might even apply them today, so that we might be those who are ever devoted to faithfulness to you, love of one another, and service of our neighbors. We pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, I've already given a bit of an introduction, so I'm just going to begin with the three headings that I want us to look at this evening. The first is a call, here it is, help your brother. Help your brother. The second, promote and prolong life. Promote and prolong life. And then the third point is this, what it means to be pro-life. What it means to be pro-life. And I have within that Word that I know that word pro-life is a bit of a technical term even now. What I mean is, how are we those who absolutely, in every way, promote the lives of our neighbors? And it does include, of course, uh, this call to protect the young and innocent. Help your brother, promote and prolong life, and what it means to be pro-life. Let's look at the first point. Help your brother. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 22 we read of Paul's exhortation to the church in Galatia. And in that, we read Galatians chapter 6, verse... That can't be possible, because there is no verse 22. It was a test. It was a test of you. Now, actually, I had it written down wrong. I should know better than that. Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Guess what? As members of Christ's church, what you have promised to do is help one another. That means you take the phone call. If you see someone hurting, if you see someone who needs a meal, you support one another. And what we read here in Deuteronomy chapter 22 is just the way in which we are called to love one another. That love for one another is more than going to them and saying, I love you. Right? You've heard this. Spouses say it to one another. You say it to your children. Your children say it to one another. They say it to their parents. They say, I love you. But love is far more than just an emotional response, uh, something that you feel to the familiar. In fact, Christ says to his disciples in John chapter 13, this is how they will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I'm thinking of the Randall Goodgame song in my head. I'm not going to sing it. I could, but I'm not. What does that look like? What is Christ-like love? 
There is a lot of confusion about what that means even now. To love your neighbor. Sometimes what that means or thought is thought to be meant is you tolerate their wickedness. You don't confront their error, either of life or doctrine. It, oftentimes in the church, what it means is this. Just be nice. We have enough nice people. What we need are those who truly love one another. And how do you love one another? Well, last Sunday morning, I preached in this way. If you are a vessel in the house of God, either for uh, honorable or holy use or dishonorable use, a loving relationship is one vessel saying to another vessel, you missed a spot. Go clean yourself. It is Christ-like or Christ-exalting love. And so it is love that points one another to the finished work of Christ, to a justifying faith and a sanctifying faith. You are called to love. And you're not only to call to love in word, but in deed. And sometimes what that means is you must spend your time helping one another. And here is such an example. Let's say your Doberman Pinscher gets out of the back door and she runs up the Duke Power right away, all the way up to a neighbor's house. What is a neighbor to do? Well, they know where the Doberman came from because the Doberman frequents the Duke Power right away. And I let her out, and in 30 seconds, she can cover probably 800 yards. She can probably run tops 30 miles an hour. I'm talking about my own dog. And you turn around, and she's gone. It's like a, a shadow that just moves along the ground. One day, I got in my car, and I drove up the road, and there she was, just sitting in a field, looking at me like, what? Did I do something wrong? So oftentimes, we'll have a neighbor that'll drive down the house, and they'll stop, and we'll be out the front, and they'll say, hey, have you lost a dog? Yes, I lost a dog. That is the neighborly thing to do. What, the, what, what Christ is calling his people to do is to be neighborly. How much more your livelihood, your sheep, your brother's ox, if something that belongs to your neighbor and you find it astray or stuck in a ditch or somewhere, or if it's something that isn't yours but you know belongs to someone else because it isn't yours, there is no finders, keepers, losers, weepers law in the Bible. That law does not exist. Instead, what Christ calls his people to do is to be self-deniers and to say, you know what? I don't know that pig. That pig doesn't bear my ring or my brand. That cow doesn't have my name on its rear quarter. That's my neighbor's. And so you take the time and the effort to get that animal, put it in your pasture until the neighbor can lay claim to it. And in this, you are preserving and prolonging life, not only of the animal, right? If my dog gets out, and they wander around too much, this is the dog that will just run across the street like those squirrels in our neighborhood that have no care for their lives. And she'll just, boom, right across the street. The longer she's out, the greater her life is in danger. Um, I haven't seen any cows walking through our neighborhood or pigs. Uh, we do have chickens that have crossed the road from time to time that have come out of our backyard. 
Yes, we are that family, not only the dog, but the stray chicken. Yesterday, it was almost some ducks. It would be the neighborly thing to do, not to call the cops, but to say what? Let me help shoo these chickens back in your backyard. And if we ever get to return the favor, which I imagine we will never get to do, we would return some missing animal to our neighbor. We are called to help our brother. Now, you may say, what is this miscellaneous collection of laws? Well, here what we find is that we are helping our brother for the sake of his property's life and for his own. Let's say it's your only cow and you need that milk. I shouldn't have said pig because this is the Old Testament and it is the, it is the book of Deuteronomy. I guess when I say pig, I mean new covenant animals, right? And so we see the example of an ox or a donkey or a sheep. It is your responsibility to help them. And I see you do this. Let's say someone, his car is broken down. Well, someone sends out an email to the church and they say, hey, so-and-so needs a car to get to work. And in that, what you are doing is you are helping your neighbor provide for himself or herself and their family. You are helping the reclamation of those or that which is lost. And in this, we not only find the call to prolong life, but we find a little agrarian picture of redemption. I'm thinking of Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep, of the lost coin, of the prodigal son. In a finder's keeper's, loser's weeper's religion... There is no occasion in which you get to celebrate the reclamation of precious property. In fact, this is how the older son felt, right? He took no joy in the reclamation of his younger brother. Christ came for that which was lost. He came after it. He went after it. I heard from Derek Thomas one time this language. The hounds of heaven pursued us and found us and laid claim to us. Redemption is the story of Christ caring for that which is lost and restoring it to its rightful home. We are to have that kind of heart. We are to seek the proclamation and the prolonging of that life that is given by God alone. And so the question is, will you help your neighbor reclaim that which is lost? Will you help your neighbor when he is lost? Have you seen your neighbor in this way? I don't necessarily mean the guy that's walking down the city and he's sort of talking to himself. What's that guy doing? Maybe he is lost, and maybe you do need to go help him. Maybe he's not right in the mind. I'm speaking not just physically, but spiritually. Will you help your neighbor knowing that he is lost? Do you know what it is like? Can you imagine going to the beach and seeing a child being tossed in the waves and going, well, I'm sure someone will help him. What would you do? Did you see the video? of the zookeeper that had her hand in the alligator's mouth this week. Anybody see this? And there's a dad standing outside of the, of the glass wall, and he jumps inside the enclosure right on top of this. I don't know if it's an alligator or a crocodile. I don't know the difference. Either way, you're going to lose that arm after a little while. 
and he gets on top of this crocodile, and the woman is finally able to pull her hand out, the zookeeper, she should have known better, I guess, and she escapes, and he's just sitting on this crocodile. And all the people that are on the outside are giving him advice about how to escape. And eventually what it amounted to was he pushed himself off and ran. He was helping his neighbor. Keep her arm from the elbow down. And if that alligator, can you imagine the vice as it began to spin and you don't spin with it? Whoop, right off it comes. We are to help. We are to see the needs of our neighbors and we are to, as Christ comes to us, seek their good. And you know what opportunities you have when you do help? In some ways we see the pattern for the diaconate here. Caring for the physical needs of our neighbors. This is how we are to promote and help our brother. Let's look at the second point, to promote and prolong life. Now, here is an interesting point, and you may wonder, how do we go to talking about lost donkeys and oxen and sheep to cross-dressers? How did we get there? In this way. The Lord isn't just talking about garments. He's talking about sexual confusion. I told you Deuteronomy is going to be a little bit challenged sometimes. He's talking about men that identify as women and women that identify as men. Yes, this is not a 21st century big city problem. This is a problem as old as creation itself since the fall. And since the fall, this is what men have said in their hearts. Well, you know what? I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it my way. And sometimes men have said that while wearing dresses. I'm going to do it my way. Lipstick on and everything. And they are shaking their fists at God, and this is what they're saying. I don't like what you've made me. But that doesn't make them not what they are. One of the other lessons I learned in raising chickens and ducks is that after a period of time, you don't have to wonder of what sex they belong to because they begin to act according to their sex. For instance, we have four ducks. One is a white, fat, just beautiful, waddling thing. Her name is Jemima. She is a female. Well, we have two khaki camels, which is another breed, and we were convinced that there was one male and one female until today, after lunch, we were out there and we learned they're both male. It was obvious. It was very obvious. Now, here is how they act. They act in such a way that belongs to their particular sex. And it is obvious. Men have this, and I say men as in mankind, unique ability to be of such corruption in our minds and our hearts that we think that we can squeeze a turnip and get blood out of it. Or that we can spin lead into gold. What I'm talking about, and I've said it before from the pulpit, is alchemy. Alchemy is believing something of created order that cannot possibly be true no matter how much you wish for it. No matter how much I want to move to the experience of childbirth. I don't actually. It will never happen to me. And there's a very clear reason that even a toddler can understand. I am a boy. As God is writing to his people, he is writing to a group of people who are no less confused and tempted to certain kinds of sin than we are today. And what he is saying is this, 
You are limited in your call to how I have made you. If I've made you a man, a male, you are that. A female, a woman, that is what you are. And in order to promote life, you must act according to your sex. Don't pretend to be something that you are not. What would happen, for instance? Well, have you heard of the Shakers? You know who the Shakers are? They make wonderful furniture. But they didn't make furniture for very long. Do you know why? Because sex was considered sinful. And the men and the women lived in this compound, but they were separated all the time. Do you know what happens when that happens? Nothing happens. You never grow. You never propagate. You can't expand. And so they denied the sort of biological imperative that was rightly given to them by God, and in, in rejecting it in this sort of cult-like philosophy and religion, they literally died off because they did not propagate their numbers. As, as Christ is speaking to his people, he's saying this, don't pretend to be something that you're not, but instead embrace your true call and grow the body. Men be men, women be women. Women, do you remember that photo album that was, or that photo shoot that was done in Vogue or one of those magazines? And it was that former boy band guy, and he dressed all in women's clothing. And there was a whole group of people on one side of the aisle that said, How brave he is. For what? Why? And all the good women I knew looked at him and went, oh, that's awful. There is nothing attractive about that at all. Not at all. And they think they're being innovative. They think they're pushing the boundaries. But what they're actually doing is they're performing alchemy. They're trying to make something that can never possibly be true, true, because they want it to be true so, so Badly, because their sin has corrupted their hearts and minds. And so we are not to endorse the pursuit of this kind of confusion. But rather, we are to call men and women to repentance and to take upon themselves their rightly given calling. That's how it fits in. How do you prolong life? You create new life. How do you create new life? You act like men and you act like women. And not only that, but there is this other item we find here as it relates to mama birds and baby birds. And if you come across a nest in a tree, maybe you can reach it, or it's a nest on the ground because there are many animals like chickens who lay their eggs on the ground. What you are not to do is take the mother, but take the eggs. And this is obvious. Why? For the same reason you teach a man to fish and not give him a fish. If you keep the mom, you'll have many eggs. If you take the eggs, well, you get to eat for the day. And then tomorrow, if that chicken lays another egg, you get another egg. We have to be taught these things. Because the corruption of the human heart is what? We don't actually believe a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. 
If someone were to ask you, would you want a dollar now? You know, that whole sort of proverb, now or later, the consumption of the human heart, this, this all-obsessive, I want it all right now, it's overriding. And so the wicked man does what? He takes the eggs and he takes the chicken. He takes the eggs and he takes the bird. Why? Because he has an all-consuming desire for himself. Here's the test. I want you to do this test. It's a little bit silly. Tonight, when you go home, and if you have ice cream in the freezer, I want you to try to stop eating halfway through the pint. Here's the problem. If you take the pint out of the freezer, what happens? My daughter is the only person, Mary, that knows how to do this. She takes a spoon, and she just scrapes a layer, and she eats it. And I'm looking at her, and I go, you're a lunatic. How do you stop? It's like six servings for every pint of ice cream. There is one serving of ice cream in a pint, right? In fact, they even tell you, and they try to make you feel guilty. It's 420 calories for one serving. It's 1,200 calories in a whole pint. I look at it and go, I don't care. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm doing pretty good today. I can eat 1,200 calories of fat and sugar. Why not? But if you take that and you put it into a bowl, you typically do what? You ration it. Dominion, God-honoring dominion of creation requires discipline, self-denial. It requires you to say, no, let's save that for tomorrow. Remember the manna and the manna that came from heaven? God said to the nation of Israel, when you collect manna, only collect what? Enough for one day. Do you know how many Israelites probably went ahead and collected manna for the whole week? Probably every single one of them. And you know what would happen? They would find the manna that they did not eat on Monday rotten by Tuesday. And it would have worms in it. And what was God teaching Israel? Two things. The discipline of dominion and the principle of trust. Trust that God will continue to feed you. But this is not the way the world thinks. In fact, there is a proverb that Christ gives in the Gospels about the rich man and the barns. What is he trying to do? He is trying to build for himself an agrarian Babel. He wants to build a kingdom of self that will protect him in the days that are to come. But when death comes, guess what goes with him? None of what he saved. Because the reason for which he built bigger barns and bigger silos was to satisfy his all-consuming desires. It's the Scrooge McDuck. It's the great barons who gathered everything to themselves. And we must be vigilant and disciplined and deny ourselves all of it so that we may have some tomorrow. So tonight when you go home, I want you to prove Lay's wrong. You can eat just one potato chip. Next, the parapet around a roof. Do you know what a parapet is? It's not that thing that sits on your shoulder. That, that's, what, that's a bad joke. It's a, it's a wall. It's a, it's, a, it's a railing. When you go out, I'm trying to think, oh, there's a railing right here. There's a railing to assist you from walk, for walking down the steps. There's a railing here. You know, down the wheelchair access. What if there was no railing 
and someone was in a wheelchair and they lost control, what would happen? Off the side they would go. You know whose fault that would be? Well, theirs, because they should have known better. No! We would be in some fashion liable. So these houses that they would build, they would be houses with flat roofs, and oftentimes they would go up on the roofs at night because it would get cooler in the desert, really cool, and the house would still be hot because it had been baking all day long. And in order to protect people from accidents, right, as far as we're concerned, you were to build a fence around the top of your roof so that your kid isn't up there or someone else's kid and they fall right off. It is not an obsession with safety. It is just good, plain, common sense. If you're up on a roof and it's dark and they didn't have this nice little lighting that you have on your sidewalk as you go to your house, and in the dark of night, you're stumbling around because you're sleepy and you go whoop off the roof, you could break a neck, break a leg, break an arm. The emergency room was really expensive back No, they didn't have an emergency room. If you break your femur, you're probably going to get sepsis and die. The Lord is saying, do the things that you need to do in order to protect and promote and prolong life. Why? Because we're bodies and souls. Because the kingdom of God isn't just some immaterial, Gnostic, floaty world that exists beyond all that we see. No, it exists of flesh and blood and soul. Of body and soul. Parents, you would, to build a treehouse, maybe you wouldn't build a tree stand like this. But if you were to build a treehouse for your children, you would put sides on it to protect them. All of these speak of a call to diligence to prolong life. And then we have this interesting section here at the end. If you sow a vineyard, one seed. If you wear a garment, it cannot have two types of fabric in it. It can't have wool and linen. And then this verse 12, which isn't really related to 10 and 11, but it does tie in to some degree. What we need to see is this. As it relates to the pursuit of prolonging life, the people of God are nothing like the world. And if we are to preserve and promote life, we must be wholly distinct in the way that we dress ourselves. The reason why this next section is added to the first is that Christ wants to make it very clear through his prophet Moses, through the passing of laws, <coughs> and how we dress ourselves is that we are those who endeavor to be guardians of life. The world looks out for number one. For number one. Now, there are times where there are pagans who rightly apply the word of God. There are those who believe that abortion is murder and they're not Christians. But what they have done is they have accidentally... Well, maybe not accidentally, but by design, rather, as those who are made in the image of God, stumbled into a biblical principle of protecting life. In fact, you see it now. There's a rise, even in sort of secular circles, where they're beginning to show themselves to see that the way of the world is death. And they're just, it's almost like they're right on the cusp of being Christians. This is what you need to do. You need to go up to them and go, boop, and just push them right in. Teach them where that stuff comes from. 
What explanation do you have? Well, here it is. We are those who publicly, conscientiously, explicitly do everything we can to promote life. Kids, buckle up. Be careful. But the motivation of the world to protection is not the same. It is not to glorify and honor Christ, but self. And so we are to dress ourselves as those who are devoted to the protection of life. And the way in which we do this, we see in verse 12. This kind of dress is indicative of those who believe themselves to be chosen and beloved of God. We see that in Numbers chapter 15 and Matthew chapter 23. Now in Matthew chapter 23, Christ is rebuking the Pharisees for having tassels that were too long. They were self-righteous. They didn't wear the garment in order to show I am a true follower and a sincere adherent to grace. They wore those garments self-righteously. Like the politician that runs on the pro-life ticket but has no interest whatsoever of actually pro-life agendas. They only use it as a means of getting power. This is Pharisaism. But we must dress ourselves as a chosen people, not for pride, but righteous distinction. What I mean by that is this. Some of you need to be nurses and doctors and policemen and firefighters. These are the kinds of people that run into burning buildings or falling towers, and they do so not because society says I should, but because Christ gave his life for you. And so you will give your life for another. Christians ought to be those who are wholly distinct, not just because of what they do, but for the motivation of it. We should be conservationists. Yes, I mean that, as it sounds. We are not to abuse the world that God has given, but we are to conserve in wisdom and righteousness. You must take the time to deny yourself to prolong and promote human and animal life. We do not take life viciously, flippantly, but wisely. And even now that we have the Holy Spirit among us, we are to go out into the world and teach people these ways. Because who else is going to do it? You think the Taliban is doing that right now? Do you think that? Do you think the secularist is doing that? Listen, the things that are done in the name of false gods are horrendous. And we are a people who are called to do better, to defend the lives of the helpless, to be men and women devoted to holiness. And when your neighbor's pig gets out, go put them back in the pen. Raise chickens? I don't know. Maybe. Grow some eggs. In fact, there is actually a very real opportunity thrust into our laps all the time in this country. And I'm talking about the opportunity of refugees. This is not... Again, this is not a political thing. Although I will say this, there is much talk right now about the machinations of those who are in power as to why refugees are being let in this country. Here's how you ought to feel about it. I don't care why they're being let in. As a church member, 
I'm going to claim them for Christ Jesus. If you don't want the things to happen that often happen when certain people let refugees in, what I'm talking about is buying votes. Then you claim them for Christ. Stop sitting down and wondering, well, I wonder what will happen to them. Do you know the fear and the helplessness of being lost? Of being separated as a child from your mother and your father, never to see them again? Never knowing what happens to them? And they're not animals. They're humans. And they're coming. Right now, at this time, there are thousands of Afghanis who are being flown to Austin, Texas. And they are waiting to be claimed. And I don't mean that they go to the day's end. I mean, we need to go and claim them for Christ Jesus. The nations are being brought to us. And the question is, will we bring them into God's house by seeking that which is lost, their very souls? I want us as a congregation to begin to plan and think about how we might be active in reclaiming the lost sheep of Israel and bringing them into the house of God. I'm talking about fostering. I'm talking about going out and saying, you are no longer in your home. You're in a strange place with strange people with different customs. Come and be part of what God is doing here. And they may say, well, I don't believe what you believe. And you say, well, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to seek to convert you, and I'm going to preach the gospel to you, and by God's grace, there will be elect. There are elect on that plane. They are coming here. And know it. It may not be many, but there are some. Because God is bringing them here for a reason. Whatever that reason may be, or whatever reasons men may have. Our calling is to prolong the lives of those who, like us, are made in God's image. Let's pray. Lord, our God.